Okay, well, Wilson, thank you very much for joining us on what is about to become the very first episode of the Unlike Anywhere podcast. Oh. Let me introduce you a little bit and, and just, just reference how we first met. So, yes, a, please a, do. Okay, so a, a couple of years ago, we, we first made contact with you because we were making a film called Angel, which is all around um, some of the angels of the Northeast. And... Our connection to you was trying to link a story about the um, the the, uh, the REF window inside Durham Cathedral, and we found ourselves extremely lucky in that we we met you, and you agreed to get involved with us. And I think at that time, you you were a spring chicken. I think you were only ninety five at the time. <laughs> so yes, the years slip by. The years slip by. So. So now here we are, it's 2021, and what I thought would be really nice for the show, uh, particularly for the first show, was to let other people meet you and find out a little bit about you and, uh, and maybe cover some kind of potted history of your life up to this point, because I'm sure it's, we've still got plenty of time in front of us. So let's have a, let's have a, little, um, let's have a little chat about you and, and, and your life, if that's okay. I don't know. So, um, so start right at the beginning for us then. So where were you born? What year were you born? Well, I was definitely born, I can guarantee that. <laughs> and it was in 1924 in, in Sunderland, a place called Western Hill. So, you, so tell me a little bit about your childhood. What, what did your parents do? What was your, what was your kind of start in life? My start in life, I remember things that I was, when I was two years of age, as if it hadn't yesterday. I can go along the street that I was born in and eventually go up a place called Chester Road in Sunderland and that's where we moved to when I was two and two and a half years of age. My father was a painter and decorator. He belonged to the firm called George Taylor and Son. Okay. Painters and decorators. Okay. The son being my father's brother, because my father was the younger of the two brothers. But he didn't go into the painting business until he came back from Flanders in 1918. Okay. And I was born just six years after he came back from the trenches. That's interesting because I, mean, I, I know um, I have grandparents that served in the First World War. Sorry, I have great-grandparents who served in the First World War. And my, my grandparents are of the, of the generation um, that I guess you're from in terms of their time being the Second World War. But n neither of my granddads served in the, in the Second World War for different reasons. Um, but in the First World War, my, my, my mum's dad, uh, sorry, my mum's granddad on her mum's side, um, he was gassed at the Somme. And he survived. Oh. He survived until, until the mid-1930s. But, you know, I think it, he, his, his life was affected um, very directly by what happened to him, uh, you know, in the trenches. So how, what, was your, what was your father's First World War experiences? Did he ever talk about it? Do you know, I regret now not asking him more, but he was wounded twice at Ypres and at Arras. So he had two wound stripes on his sleeve. And he was there in the trenches for four years, wow. apart from the short time that he was taken out the trenches to Southern Ireland 
because of the troubles there. Okay. And that was the time that Churchill was over, you know, yeah, looking yeah. after things. When the, the guys were looking for independence in... That's in, right. You know, yeah, so who's yeah, out yeah, there, was really, it? Okay. Yes. So that wasn't an easy place to be either, was it, during the war? It wasn't. And, um, and so you know that he was really... What, what, what regiment did he... Do you know what he served in? Uh, yes, and I can't just bring it to mind at the moment, but it wasn't the local DLI, although he was an, in the Territorial Army, okay. and it was called up immediately, of course, when war was declared. Yeah, yeah. So, because, of course, I mean, one of the things they changed, you know, through the course of the First World War was the, the POWs concept, oh, yes. which, which saw so many groups of friends, unfortunately, losing their lives together, didn't it? Yes, the whole street mm. would lose all the men in the street yeah. because they joined together. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 you, so, so your father came back from the war and then, I mean, was that his profession before the war or did he, did he move into that one? No, for a short time he worked for uh, a drinks company, I think, in Sunderland. I'm not quite sure where. But uh, he went into the business as soon as he came back from France. And, uh, and then, of course, by then I was two, three, four years of age. And uh, my memory is so packed full of things that... I feel as though it all happened just yesterday. Really? That's really interesting. So would you say you've got a photographic memory then? Because I know we've talked yes. before and your sort of detail is very... You have a great deal of detail when you talk about something. Don't oh, you? yes. I remember my wife used to say, he's got what is known as a pornographic memory. <laughs> <laughs> she might be right. <laughs> it's a whole different story. It's a very different story. Uh, so um, so uh, did you have any siblings, any brothers or sisters? I had one sister, unfortunately she died just about two and a half years ago. Sorry about that, yeah. And uh, she, she was two older. years older, older than I was. Okay, okay. And uh, by the time war came along again, of course, by then I was 14, almost 15, and within three days of the war being declared on the... 3rd of September 1939, I was evacuated with my grammar school, the Bede Collegiate Boys Grammar School in Sunderland, to North Allerton. Right. And there I stayed right. for a year and a bit. And that's because it was, it was deemed that where you were in Sunderland was, was under a, a bombing risk. It was bombing Absolutely. risk. Absolutely. Yeah, Sunderland yeah. was the largest shipbuilding town in right. the world. And if you tell people that, they always say, no. I said town, not city. Got it. And because it wasn't a city in those okay. days. Yeah. So do you, I mean, when you, did you get, did you get any opportunity to visit back home at any point? Or were you literally away for the whole duration of that, that period? I was there for a year and a bit. And then I came back. I had no school certificate by then. Yeah. And I started work as a wages clerk in the town hall in Sunderland, in the treasurer's department. Well, just, just when you came back, just a question for you about, you know, if, if Sunderland, obviously Sunderland as a shipbuilding centre, could you see damage that had been caused through the war? Was the place damaged quite badly? Yes, it or? was. There was a few bombs dropped, but nothing as bad as a night in 1941, which I'll tell you about now if you're yeah, interested. Yeah, please do, yeah, yeah. By then I was 16 and a half and uh, 
I was in the air training corps as a sergeant. I was running the scout troop because the other officers had been called up. Of course. And most of all, I was an air raid precaution messenger. And how old were you? 16 and a <laughs> 16 half. And a half, OK. And I drove a 250 BSA motorbike carrying messages all around Sunderland. And of course, if the siren went, if we were being attacked, I was immediately on duty, day or night, and that's where the trouble started. Right. Because I had to get out of bed, get my steel helmet on, my uniform and gas mask, and get down to headquarters as quickly as possible. Okay. But the trouble was, you see, when I was the age of 16, 16 and a half, and I went to bed, I didn't sleep. I died. Yeah, yeah. And the siren, which was perched on a hospital building 200 yards away and just... Screamed at Extremely you. Extremely loud. Still didn't, didn't wake, wake you me up. up. <laughs> and my father used to shout upstairs and finally had to come out of stairs and shake me into life. So uh, I thought, well, this is not fair on him. Uh-huh. So what I did, I went into a junk shop in Sunderland and bought one of those bells on the big spring that okay. they used to have on shop doorways. Yeah, I know this is what you mean. And I fastened it to a beam about... 24 inches above my bed head and put a string onto it through an air brick hole and right down the stairs. So my father, all he had to do was put... Well, one night, it's 1941, I'd gone to bed and the siren had sounded and he, as usual, shouted, Wilson, get out of bed. No response. So he pulled this bell, ding-a-ding-a-ding above me. Still no good. Really? But by then, with the German aircraft, with the, there were Dorniers and Heinkel 111s were overhead and started dropping their bombs. Right, and, of right. course, the ARCAG guns were firing. The shells were bursting in the sky and wow. shrapnel was falling on the... Yeah tiles of the roof and breaking the tiles. You could hear that. And I was sleeping through all this. So finally, my father pulled the bell and in sheer desperation, he came upstairs. The noise was horrendous. And he pulled the covers back and he said, Wilson, get up. You're on duty. There's a raid on. And I'm told I opened my eyes and said, how do you know? <laughs> wow, wow. That's amazing. And then I was on was, duty. And that was a big raid, was it, that one? Did they do some damage done It was very bad. One? There was a landmine dropped a quarter of a mile away right. from our house and a small bomb two streets away. Right. Still didn't wake me up. Astonishing. So um, the race happened. It's 1941. Yes. The yeah. raid's happening. You're 16 and a half. And just tell us, so when you did actually wake up, when you were woken up by your father, what was your responsibility at that point? What did you have to do? Just had to put my black... Cos- uh, battle dress on, steel helmet and uh, the chest gas mask as we used by the army and then go downstairs, get my bicycle out and pedal like mad down to headquarters to my 250 BSA so that if a bomb demolished some telephone wires then I would have to start carrying messages. 
And, uh, you know, the strange thing is the number of times during the night and during the day that I went on duty, it never frightened me at all. I was never scared, and I don't remember seeing anybody scared. Mm, mm. But it was pretty horrible all the same. And, and while, you, while you were doing that, the, the, the population, were the guys in air raid shelters in gardens, or are they under their tables in the kitchens? Mostly. Or? Yeah. Under the stairs. Under the stairs. My okay. family, fortunately, had a friend who had a cellar, and they okay. would go down the back okay. lane and down into the cellar, which was awful. If a bomb had dropped and the three-storey house had collapsed on the yeah, yeah, cellar, yeah. it would have been awful. What were the shelters called that they used to build? Anderson shelters? Anderson. Like what were they like? Did you rate those, or...? Uh, I, I never saw one, Okay, but they were terrible because they... Water just built up inside. Oh, okay. They were steel, yeah, and they used to pile soil yeah. over yeah. and yeah. make look pretty, pretty with flowers and yeah. so on. Yeah, and the Morrison shelter was something like this that we're sitting at. It was yes. about this big, and it was all steel, of course. And I remember we were asked because I was scouting at the time that if we would go and erect one of these Morrison shelters in a house just round the corner from where I'd been born. Okay. And we put put it up for the couple that lived there and they gave us five shillings and they said, when the war's finished and you take it down, we'll give you five pounds. Because <laughs> <laughs> five shillings was pretty good for yeah. about half an hour's yeah. work. But Amazing, yeah. So, um, so how long were you? How long were you doing that? How long was that your role in the in the in the Second World War? I kept going, doing all those things, fire watching at the town hall at mm. least once a week, fire watching at the church at least once a week, and mm. of course my duties. And I played in the band of the ATC. And uh, what did you play? I played a B flat flute very badly. In fact, I think I knew two tunes. One was called Blaze Away, and the other was the RAF March. And I didn't know any other tune, and I couldn't read music anyway. I did it all by ear. Perfect, perfect. So you, so you've done yeah. that for that period. So, what in terms of the sort of reporting structure then? So, you know, you're you're quite a young guy at this. You're heading towards being an adult, but you're still a young guy. Did you report into? The police, or to the army, or to who, who was in who was in charge in those situations? There was a chap called Joy Watson. He was also one of the senior scoutmasters in the town, and he was very badly injured in the First World War, and his face was all scarred, and half his head was metal. Okay. But he was marvelous, and I reckon he spent every night at headquarters running the messenger service and I don't think he ever got any recognition. Wow. Well, he's got a little bit now. He's got a little bit now. Uh, but that's um so I mean so really a volunteer service to support to support a a, a pretty large town. Yes, oh yes. 250,000. No, sorry, 198,000 in those days. Okay. Okay. And then and then what at what age did you switch across to a... Were you called up or did you did you volunteer or what happened next? Well, the thing is that when I was 11 or 12, I used to go up to Usworth, which was the aerodrome outside of Sunderland, lie on the grass watching the wonderful demons and hearts of the Air Force flying past. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that sometime. 
And so as soon as I was 18 years of age, on the very day I was 18, I went to Durham City and signed on as aircrew. And I was accepted and eventually sent down to Padgate for three days where I had more medicals and psychology testing and so on. And I so was what, year, what year are we on now? Is that was 40? 1942. So in 1942 then, if you hadn't you know, volunteered for a particular role, would you have been called up into a service anyway? I would have anyway? been called up and I would have been put where they wanted me. I got you, yeah. And they could have put me into the mines because yes. they were Bevan boys. And I would have hated that. But once you're accepted from air crew, for air crew, then you're privileged and nobody could touch you from the other services. Mm-hmm. So the in, in terms of air crew, they're obviously looking for intelligent guys that have got um, skills that they can develop. What what skills were they looking for? Do you think when you were when you applied? Mainly coordination and. Uh, eyesight and the ability to estimate height and and have a brain for number work because you were navigating at the same time as flying if you were solo of course yeah, yeah. so but, the point uh, at the point you went that you went through that kind of um those kind of tests were they were they finding lots of different roles for different individuals then based on those their their capabilities yes there was you were when you were actually called up and put into uniform, which I was down in London, you were either P or N or B, pilot, navigator or bomb aimer. Because after you'd done your initial training, you went straight to a grading school where they were flying tiger moths and you flew tiger moths with an instructor for seven or eight hours. And then the chief flying instructor tested you and decided whether you were suitable material to train as a pilot or a bomber or a navigator. And that was the most worrying time of my five years in the forces in case I wasn't selected as yes. pilot. What, what, do, you, do you remember what proportion was selected as pilots then? Was it 10% or 20%? Or? I would think about 33 to 30%, I would think. Okay, okay. I would think so anyway. And but then that's course, still not, the, that's, that's just to start training, isn't it? That's not a that's pilot, just that's just starting. to begin, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, there were failures along the course. Sure, sure. If, when you think back about the number of guys that you were around, how, what, what proportion of guys do you think actually made it through the whole, the whole programme with do you? Do you know, I'm never quite sure about no, it. No. I only know for sure of three. Right. And, uh, and that flew... One of them was called Peter Stig Nielsen, and eventually he was a lad from uh, Denmark. And when the war was finished and he'd qualified as a pilot, he went back home. And of course, they had no pilots because of they'd course. been under German. Yes, yeah, yeah. And he immediately stepped into aviation and became the chief pilot for the Copenhagen Civil. You know, oh, interesting. The, yeah, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And I visited him twice oh, while I was in Denmark. It was lovely to speak to him again. Well, take us through, take us from the journey. So, so the point you, you've now been selected. It's nineteen forty-two. So, how old are you? Are you seventeen or eighteen at this stage? Eighteen. Eighteen. Just eighteen. Eighteen. And I so stepped no, into my first tiger moth when I was eighteen. What What was the What What did it feel like for you getting in a tiger moth? I've actually flown in one of those. To be honest with you, oh, and I it was, was just oh, absolutely fabulous. fantastic. I, 
nothing will ever pass the thrill of flying in a tiger moth for the first time. So you're in the front I, I, seat, are you? For yes, when you're going up, you're in the front seat, seat yeah. Yes, so the, pilot, the, the pilot's seat. behind you, and you you can take control, but you're... Yes, you've got headsets on, but they are tubes, they're not electric. And uh, you had to shout to be heard over the noise of the engine. Yeah. So and I went up, I went up at Duxford in in Cambridgeshire in a tiger moth. Okay. <laughs> My so, tiger moth that I went really? really from Duxford. Right. Well, I went. I, we maybe done the same experience. So I went. I went up in one of those, and having never had that experience before, for me the terror was watching the guy strap me in with with a pin. Yeah. Connected. <laughs> yeah. So it was one, two, three, four, and then a pin that held me in. Yeah. And the guy, I said, yeah, and obviously you're open to the elements. And then when he turned us over, I realised that pin was everything in my life <laughs> for a few <laughs> moments. So, so but, I mean, you were doing it for a completely different reason, weren't you? You were doing yes, it to... I was just being tested. To be tested. So what did, you, what did you think to the experience of flying? Did you immediately love it? I loved every second. I loved the smell, the feel and everything. And I loved the responsibility of it. And I went to Duxford, as you did, okay. and I looked at all the air, aircraft on show, and I saw this tiger moth and uh, de Havilland Rapide right, outside yeah. the control tower. And I knocked at the door, went in, found the CFI, and I said, and I asked him, I said I'd like to fly in that tiger moth, and I told him that I'd qualified as a pilot. He said, Meet me at two o'clock. Really? Wow. So two o'clock in the afternoon, the morning went too slowly for me. He came along, threw a, an Irving jacket at me That's and right, a yeah. helmet and yeah. goggles. Yeah. And we had a quick inspection of the tiger moth, got in and he took off and climbed. There was a ceiling of about 1,200 feet yes. because of cloud. Yeah. But he took me up, and as soon as we got off the ground, he said, right, you've got control. Off you go. And I flew it like an idiot. It was just awful. And I shouted over, it's 50 days, 50 years since I last wow. sat in wow, the wow, seat. Wow, wow. So I said, you take over and do things, please. So did, I mean, because so, he, cause he wouldn't... When I went up with the guys, they said... The guy said... So, so the mistake I made, Wilson, is I got into the plane... And I was going up for this experience and I was in the front seat and the pilot took off and it was a completely clear day. So he got some more height and, and we were obviously, we were on modern communication, aren't we? So it's electronic communication. And he got to the height, he said, okay, we can start doing some things now. And I said, what can you do in one of these then? <laughs> Which was the most stupid thing I could have said to him because he literally turned me over yeah. to show me. And, and that's when I realised that the pin was my life. It was brilliant. I really enjoyed the experience, but it was... See, I, the, the strangest thing for me was really that you felt like you were flying outside. Uh -huh. It felt more like when I did the parachute jump, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. than being in a plane because everything was everything was there, wasn't it? So, but they, the the pilot was saying to me that lots of lots of pilots, lots of modern fighter pilots, try to fly tiger moths now because they love how responsive they are. Yeah. Did you did you enjoy that aspect of? Yes. Them? You never hold a joystick like that. You hold it like that, and you just touch it. Yeah. You don't yeah, yeah. do that, otherwise you'll fall out of the sky. Yeah, yeah. But he did a couple of stall turns for lovely, me, which lovely. are quite breathtaking. Yes. Yeah. And then he did a loop, at, did a loop. with a 1,200 feet 
ceiling, so it was a bit naughty, really. Well, I was t- you see, I was told, I said, are we going to do a loop? And the guy said, to, the pilot said to me, we're not allowed to do the loop because most people that pay for this experience aren't yeah. experienced pilots and they're not used to being in this environment and we make them sick. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, so, so he said, we're not allowed to do it because we tend to get, have people getting a bit upset. So, uh, but obviously as an experienced man, it was, it was right, right up your alley, it wasn't was it? It was heaven. <laughs> In fact, when I got out of the aircraft and walked back to the exit of Duxford, I was in seventh heaven still, and I wrote a long letter to the person there, thanking them and saying yeah, how wonderful yeah, it was. Yeah. It was great. It's interesting as well, landing. The other thing that was really different for someone who's not used to being in that environment... Um, landing on landing on grass. Yes, that was course. really really strange for me to actually think well, we're on a field here. It's just a it's just a mown field. But yeah. you must have you know. So what did you train in then? So you, you've been selected. They've said to you, you've done your your, your tiger moth you know training, and they said we think you can be a pilot. What did they do with you next? Well, the next thing was that they were going to send us over to Canada okay. to train. Okay. But because the schools were full over in Canada, they just farmed us out to various places and I finished up at a place called Metheringham a bomber station in Lincolnshire and the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me was there there was a Lancaster on the perimeter one day and the CO was walking over with a bag in his hand and I saluted him I said I'd asked if I could go with him if he was flying that he said oh come on really I don't know how I had the nerve to approach the squadron leader and ask but he took me up well we got into this Lancaster and took up took off he just did a circuit so who's he testing the plane then is that what he needed to do I don't know why I'll tell you why later I think Uh, okay okay because he landed it and then when we were getting out he said well what have you flown in I said Oh, a Lancaster Mark III. He said, have a good look at it when you get out. So we got out of the aircraft and looked at it. He said, you've just been flying in one of the few Lancasters that survived the Mondam raid last year. Wow. Because this was 1944, of course. And that's why he flew it, because he was the CEO and he was had the nerve to take it up without ground crew there to start it. Yeah. He used the, the self-starter fuel. Really, really, really. And, uh, and normally it, what size crew would a, would a Lancaster have on it? Seven. And and so he, he hasn't got a co-pilot, he's just flying Nobody, it. Wow. Just him and myself. Wow, well, well. So you're in the co-pilot's seat, though? I know, I stood okay. behind him at okay. the uh, navigator's place. Okay, yeah. And it was just so exciting, but it only lasted a quarter of an hour, I should think. Yeah, yeah. But to think that I've actually flown in <laughs> one of the Lancasters that was on the actual raid, it could have been Guy Gibson's for yes, all I know. Absolutely, yeah. And then the next day it disappeared. It was obviously there before being dismantled and disposed yeah, of. Yeah. To have the belly cut out, you know. To take the bouncing for bomb. For the bouncing bomb, yeah. That's why he said when you get out the aircraft, look back at it. Yeah, yeah, and of yeah. Of course, the mid-upper turret had been taken away to reduce weight. Yeah, yeah. And the bouncing bomb had been put in so, its place. Well, and who was it Barnes Wallace who developed the bouncing bomb? Is that right? Was he the It engineer? was Barnes Wallace. Yeah. Another story, if I may. Really, yeah. After I'd been teaching, after I'd been trained as a teacher at university... I took a party of lads down to the Fodroyant, which is a 
ship in the uh, Gosport uh, of the Nelson period and okay. used for naughty boys, really, to train them. And I took my class on board for a week and had a wonderful week. I took them all over the place into a submarine onto Victory to the Whale Island uh, gunnery station. And then as we were coming away on the Friday night before leaving, a little girl, about 18, came up to me and she said, Mr. Taylor, she was secretary on board. She said, I was in London last night. I said, were you? What doing? She said, I was at a Royal Command performance. I said, what? How on earth do you manage that? What was it? She said, it was the Dam Busters. I said, how on earth did you get onto that? She said, because my father is Dr. Barnes Wallace. Wow, what a story. So I said to her, I said, well, when you get home, tell your dad that you've been speaking to an RAF chap who's actually flown in one of the Lancasters. Not on the raid, but the year after. Yes, yeah. That's astonishing. It was. Uh, so, so, you, so you. How long? So, how long were you in Lincolnshire before you? Did you then go on to Canada? Yes, about three months, I should think, and it seemed to be like three years because we hated it. We're doing all sorts of menial tasks just to keep us out of mischief, and then eventually we were taken up to Grenach and put onto a big line at the Ile de France. And that was in 1943, just before Christmas, and sailed across the Atlantic. And the weather was absolutely atrocious, and we had to immediately turn south because of the U-born scare ahead of us. And we went south almost to the equator, and everybody was hot. And then we turned west to the uh, coastline of North America, turned right and up and landed eventually in New York, where the temperature was very much lower than we had been used to. But most of the cadets were seasick anyway all the time, so I used to have as many as three breakfasts because I was never worried about seasickness. So did you get did you get to have a look around New York in the during the war then or not? Well, we got off the the, the boat and we just marched immediately to a train. So I didn't see New York apart from the fact that we landed and sailed round the Statue of Liberty to get in, and uh, we finished up in Canada where the temperature was minus thirty, and we hadn't even been issued with winter clothing, so we froze, and that's where we went to start our initial training, the Elementary Flying Training School at Yorkton in Saskatchewan. And it was just wonderful. It was heavy snow, and every morning, tractors would carry gang, uh, pull gangs of rollers behind them to flatten the snow and make it hard so we could use it to land on. So you, you didn't have any issues taking off and, and, and land? There was no issue with fuel freezing at that temperature? No, but you had to run your engine, keep bursting the power to make sure your carb didn't freeze up. Right, OK, OK. So, and what were you learning to fly in? In a thing called the Cornell, which was oh, yeah. rather like the chipmunk okay. of the RAF. 
and it was a wonderful little aircraft to fly. fly. It was stressed for any aerobatics you wanted to do, but slightly underpowered. So sometimes if you were doing something like a loop, you might stall it and Oof. fall out of the sky doing this. And, right. But we were totally You could trouble. recover it, yeah. 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 Did, um, did, did everyone get through that? Or? No, no. I don't know how many failed. No, no. All I know, he said, sure enough, that I was passed out from the EFTS with an above-average rating. Perfect, yeah. And we went yeah. then south down to Manitoba, where we... Uh, Went on to twin engine Nansen's. Okay, so single to twin engine is the next move for you then. That's right. Okay, okay. Which was the SFTS, the Service Flying Training School. Okay, okay. And it was there that I qualified as a pilot. So the the the, um, the twin engines. Can you handle one of those as a solo pilot? Do you need a co-pilot or? Oh what's the... no, I have, I used to do. I don't know how I did it, but I was only nineteen then. I was doing three and a half hour night solos, night solos, no navigator, no co-pilot. Wow. But it was a good aircraft to fly. And then when and you, when course, you, if you flew solo, would you have someone in observing you as you were training or would you just go oh, up on yes. your own? You'd have someone in with you all oh, the time. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Were, the, the training and the testing was relentless. Okay, yeah. And day and the, the uh, class school, the school rooms were absolutely full of us learning navigation, RAF law, everything about the, the war. Because you see, as soon as we were qualified, we were going to go on to twin engined yeah. mosquitoes, mosquitoes, in right? British Columbia, right? To go over and fight the Japs. Okay, so you were, you were going to go to the war in the Pacific. That was your yes, direction. That was because what at that I was stage it was it was it was really where 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 the, the the key action was starting to happen. It was terrible. Yes. Yeah, it was terrible out there, wasn't it? But the war finished just as I was qualifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, fortunately, I suppose I didn't drop the bomb or fire a gun in anger. What do you think about that then? Because you know it's it's a really tough one, isn't it? You, there's a there's a, a massive benefit to knowing that you've never had to to do that, but at the same time you'd also trained for a long time to do that. Oh, so yes. did you do you do you you know do you wish you got in earlier? Wish you were older, or what's I your? I wish that I was older. Older, <laughs> but wiser people tell me that I was fortunately Fortunate, not older. Yeah. yeah, it's it's such a tough one, isn't it? I can. But I, can, I didn't get my wings, you know that. Well, you can tell tell us the story of the wings because you know that that brings us very up to date, doesn't it? Really? Yes. Well, I was qualified as soon as I was qualified. They sent us back to England. And as we left, my instructor, Flying Officer Underwood, shook my hand. He said, well, Wilson, you've done well. You've got an above average rating and you'll get your wings in due course. Got it, yeah. And I was expecting to get over to England and somebody to call me yes. and present me with my wings. Yes, yeah. But it didn't happen like that. And what, what month is Is this 45? What month is it we're talking now? Is we're this... talking about uh, September. September, OK. I arrived home okay. a week before my 21st birthday. OK, OK. And uh, no wings to prove that I was a qualified pilot, but... I kept my logbook. Oh, great. And that was signed and sealed. Key, key and as well. Everything was... Yes, yeah. 
And for 70 years, I kept on trying, ringing and emailing down south to the training command and so on. And they always gave an excuse, oh no, and they quoted all sorts of facts and figures. And after 70 years of trying, in sheer despair one day, I asked Maureen to type a letter for me to Her Majesty the Queen. What year was that for? That was 19... No, it was 2014. 2014, okay. 2014, okay. seven years ago yes, now. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And uh, she typed the letter which, uh, in which I told the, Her Majesty what had happened. Yes. And I didn't expect a reply. Yes. But a lovely reply came after, within 10 days, saying that she was awfully sorry, but she was interested but couldn't do anything, you know, couldn't direct anybody. Yes. But she said, I'm sending your letter to me and my letter to you to the House of Commons, to the Minister for Defence, which she did. And suddenly, one day, I got a phone call from uh, RAF Boomer and a voice said, we're sending somebody down because down at uh, Training Command they want sight of your logbook. And I knew then as soon as they wanted yeah. to have a look at my logbook, yeah, yeah. that there was hope after 70 years of yes. trying. Yeah. And sure enough, I was called down to linton on Ooze in September, no, in August 2014. And an Air Vice Marshal pinned them on my chest and gave me a l- wonderful day there with my family. My family went down with me. So is that back to Lincolnshire then? That's the fighter station in Lincolnshire. So, you, so all those years ago, when you had that experience with that, with that, with that bomber, that, that you know, when you went up, yes, that and you're back in the same county, same county. How strange is that? Yes, yeah. yeah. So, and then you went down, and and who who did you, who, who did you take with you? My son and his wife, and my daughter. Sorry, my son, not his wife. My son, my daughter, and her husband. Okay. Okay. And they gave us a lovely day. They took us after the presentation. They took us into the mess, and there was a special meal provided. And then after that, they took me to the RAF museum on the station. Yes. And then after that, they said, "We're going to put you in a flight simulator, the type that are used by the modern fighter yeah. pilots." So they shoved me in this, and I said, "Look, I can't see properly now. Never mind." So they closed the hood. They showed me where the important things were and they said, right, take off. So I took off and my family were downstairs in the room with nine television sets wow, around wow. them and they could see exactly what I could see. And from what, the what were you supposed to be flying, Wilson? What were you in? It was just was, a was simulator. It but for it was a the, tornado or what sort no, of... No, not the tornado, the Takano. Okay, it okay. Was the, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, single engine, but prop, it wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Anyway, I took off and I flew over the Humber Bridge and then I flew to starboard and went up to the Lake District to Ulswater, flew right to the head of Ulswater, climbed to about 10,000 feet, did a couple of flick rolls and a loop, and then on the radio I asked permission to land at Newcastle and I got it. 
So I turned to starboard and there, 30 miles ahead of me, eventually I could see the runway. And uh, I landed this brute of a thing without crashing it. It wasn't a good landing, but in the RF, any landing that you walk away walk from is a good one. Absolutely. It wasn't a good landing, but yeah. I landed it. Well, it was also was your first time trying to fly in that simulator as oh, well. Oh, so yes. Completely was, you. Yes, it was, Amazing. it was a great day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a... I, I gave both Air Vice Marshals, the one who is in command of training and his friend who was, had just been flying, uh, with a box each. And inside I'd put half each of my collection of old postcards of old aeroplanes and one or two books from the Second World War, Amazing. which are collector's items. Yes, yeah. And they were both absolutely thrilled with them. Yeah. Well, a fellow pilot, they, they, knew what, they knew who they were dealing with. And those are the wings, you're wearing them today? No, the wings that I was presented with are on the wall in my house, because my son being a picture frame I had, I gave him my wings, my medals, my full medals, and a sixpence, I think I told you about the sixpence. Tell us about it? the sixpence again. The sixpence was given to me by the Air Vice Marshal after he shook my hands. In 1918, when the RAF was born from the Royal Flying Corps, the uh, pilots used to put a sixpence behind the crown in the middle here to make it stand proud of their uniform because there was silk in those days. And it's been a tradition ever since. And when I looked at the sixpence that he gave me, it was a 1945 sixpence with George the Fifth, uh, George the Sixth on, who I served under. He was my monarch at the time, and uh, and I thought it was so thoughtful of him to bother to do that. What a, what a what a lovely gesture from from someone who uh, didn't need to make that gesture, did they? He didn't. He was really great. Yeah, yeah. And there were both really charming fellas. And neither of us could eat the meal because we got on talking so much. I was asking yeah. him about flying. What was these. he flying? What was it? What was his background? What had he been a fast jet pilot? Or? Fast, fast oh. jet. Yes, the best. Yeah, yeah. He must have done. He must have done some war service somewhere, but yeah. we yeah. didn't get round to talking war. Yeah, it would have been Afghanistan just, or Iraq. Couldn't just it, flying. Yeah, incredible. So, um, so. I mean that that's that's your kind of your war story brought right up today, which is which is amazing. But after the Second World War, once you came out of the the military, yeah. you did carry on flying, though, didn't you? I did. Well, I I couldn't dream of going back to the town hall to work, and I was a teacher by then, and I was teaching in Sunderland and then in Wall's End, and I took a chance and went on to Concord and flew in the Concorde from London up to Newcastle. It was the first Concorde to land there. And it was most interesting. And I met on board a chap called Ken Doyle. And we just chatted together and he said he'd been a rear gunner in Lancaster. So I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, would you like to 
what do you do? I said, well, I was a pilot during the war. He said, well, would you like to join me? I've got part owner of an aircraft. So I said, fancy asking a question like that of me. <laughs> and yeah. so we flew together regularly from Newcastle all over Northumberland, Scotland, down to Wally Island and down to all over the north of England. We had a lovely time. What were you flying? What did you have? A Grumman four-seater monoplane. Very nice aircraft to fly. And also it had uh, the necessary navigational aids on board. And we flew until we were both just before our 85th birthday. When he flew the aircraft from Newcastle to Carlisle, we landed, had a bar meal, and then jumped in, and I taxied on the runway, took off, and flew down to Newcastle, and landed it, and just took it up to the air, to the, uh, air, the uh, it's the Northumberland Flying Club now, right. not the Newcastle. Right. And I taxied it up to there, and that's the last time I was in an aircraft, and I miss it terribly. But I couldn't go in one now. I've been offered a flight, but I said, no, I'm not. Because I think you talked to me about microlights as well, didn't you? Well, I point? flew microlights when I was 73. That was cheaper than flying in a fixed-wing aircraft. So where were you, where were you flying the microlights? From Boomer and uh, over... I remember one day flying with my instructor, because I had to have an instructor, obviously, to begin with, and we flew over Rothbury... And we weren't very high, and a jet flew underneath us. Wow. Frightened the life out of yeah, the pair of us. Yeah, yeah, I should imagine he was pretty keen to keep out of the way of you guys as well. Yeah. He was, oh, going, was great going a little fun. bit faster. But I, I flew also, during that period, I took the opportunity of flying in a hot air balloon, and then a glider, and then in a powered glider. So... Did you ever have to get out of a plane on a parachute? Did you ever do that? I've never jumped out of a plane. You didn't fancy that? I'd rather land them. I would. <laughs> I would have jumped out rather than fry yeah, of in, course. in, in yeah. flames. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but not for pleasure. Not for pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, when we were training, both on single and twin engine, every now and then your instructor would cut a couple of engines and say, right. What will you do now? And of course, quickly you had to look round and see a chimney with smoke so you know what direction of the wind was and then find a, an area long enough to take you. That was all part of the training, of course. I mean, without going back, going back too far into, you know, talking too much about your war years, at, at the end of the war, um, what lessons did you learn that put you in a good position to sort of continue life you know, after 1945, do you think there were any lessons that were really useful for civilian life? Yes, discipline was the first thing, to look after yourself and keep your, your belongings tidy and neat. And uh, I love teaching. I love teaching very much. Even the year, two the years that I had in Sunderland and then in Wall's End. And then when I was 46... For, uh, I decided to change and go into the deaf world. And of course, at 46, I had to go to university and start from the beginning. And so I had 15 years in the deaf world, 
and they were the happiest, happiest teaching years of my teaching career. What was the, what was the catalyst for that change? Because that's a that's a massive change. I mean, teaching is one thing, but you've got to learn to sign. You've got to learn a completely well, different language, haven't you? At that point. And the thing, I was at Sunderland one night mm-hmm. to see my elderly mother. And I was sitting reading the Sunderland Echo and I came across the adverts and, and suddenly it, something jumped out into my eye. Wanted, Newcastle School for the Deaf, teacher required, must qualify within two years. And I'd never given it any thought before, but something happened, click. And so I applied, was interviewed and accepted, put in my notice at uh, War's End, where I was teaching. What, what, was your, what was your subject area? Mainly the general subjects, but mainly gymnastics and sport, although I taught quite a lot of geography and maths. And I was the very old-fashioned type of maths teacher, because after every morning assembly, when I took my class into the classroom, I made them stand up and we went through the tables, wrote, and they didn't like it, I don't think. But just about two years ago, there was a knock at my door and a chap came in and he said, you don't remember me, but I've come here because I found out where you live through, and he told me how he found he said, I just wanted to say thank you because you made me learn my tables. Wow. And he said it made a complete difference to my life because I understood maths after I became fluent with the tables. So it justified my how, how old was he at that point then, Wilson? Did, what, what, would, how, what would you estimate his age was when he came and found you? Oh, 69, I would think. Okay. And uh, do you know what he? Do you know what his career was? Did he become an accountant? Or something? Oh no, he <laughs> went into uh, something to do with shipping, but I can't tell you exactly what it was. In fact, I can't ever remember. His, I remembered his name, but I couldn't put a face to him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a strange thing. In the hearing world. I can remember the staff that I taught with, and I can remember a few names of boys. But of course, after I got my wings and I was on television, Walls End people saw me, and one day there was a knock at the door, and a fellow called George Wanup said, I've come here, Mr. Taylor, because I wanted to say that you taught me. Do you remember me? And I said, Yes, I do. I remember the name, but you've changed very much. He was then 65 or 67 or something. And he and two more of the class that got together and they've taken me out for bar meals now several times. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, we all remember teachers that had a a genuine impact on our lives, don't we? I certainly had a couple of teachers who I think the direction of choices that I made were driven very subtly by them you know, as much as by having interest in the subjects they taught. Right. You're inspired by certain individuals, aren't you? Oh, absolutely, yes. Mm. Yeah. So once, you, so once you, um, you moved into this world of teaching the deaf, what, what age groups were you teaching? How, how, what was the, how did that work? Well, I dealt with babies and the little ones, 
but my forte was the older people. And I went to the head of the school at the time and I said, look, I like teaching the juniors, but seniors are my bread and butter. So I taught 14, 15, 16 year olds mainly. And uh, because I was a teacher of science in the hearing world, the headmaster said, look, Mr. Taylor, I'm going to give you £3,000. Will you make that room upstairs, that big room, into a science lab? Which I did. And uh, had tables put up with uh, low-tension electric points, uh, water taps, sink, and, uh, of course, I had blackboard, sliding blackboard. And I taught... Science for the very first time. That school was built in in eighteen thirty seven, the time of Queen uh, uh, Victoria. Victoria yeah, young Victoria. And uh, yeah, that had never been taught science before. So my sign, you know, every teacher had a sign. If they wanted to talk about a teacher, they gave him a sign. And my sign when I first went there was that. And I found out later the reason was that in 1890 there was a dwarf at the school and his name was Taylor and that was his sign. So when I came along, Taylor, I was the big little Taylor. Wow. But after I opened the science lab, my sign changed from that to that test you through yeah 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 and that's how they know me still and in terms of in terms of was everyone profoundly deaf or did you have different levels of hearing in the class different levels of hearing in the school for the deaf most of them were severely or profoundly or Mm. subtotally deaf and required constant use of signing and finger spelling and then the idea came about that some of the children were going to the school for the deaf who were just partials and they could have learned in the normal school with a bit of help. And so they started opening units in the county and children who were partials, as we called them, were sent there to the PHUs, the partially hearing units. And there, a teacher of the deaf, qualified teacher of the deaf, would perhaps have seven to nine children and they integrated in the main school whenever they could, things like kukri and PE and that sort of thing. But the trouble was that over a number of years, and by then I was a senior in the service and I looked after four units, they started putting children into the units who should have been in the School for the Deaf. But the idiot who ran the unit system had been going round the authorities and saying, as she'd been taught to say in university, all deaf children can be taught orally. It's just a matter of using your mouth properly and using amplified sound. And... They were absolutely against any form of manualism. And so manualism couldn't be used in this situation in the units. But of course, these profoundly deaf children were starting to come into the units. 
And I went to the boss and I said, look, it's crazy sending profoundly deaf children and not permitted to manually communicate with them. Yes. But no, 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 I don't use your hands, Mr. Taylor. In fact, at a teacher's conference at Benanic, when the whole staff with about 30 teachers of the deaf now from North Tyneside, Newcastle and Northumberland, she person crucified me in front of them by saying how disgusting it was that Mr. Taylor was using manualism. But I had two deaf children in my unit that I looked after particularly at West Sleepburn and they were both profoundly deaf. Mm. And I caught one of them one day signing. So I said, who taught you to communicate with your hands? And, and she'd learned somehow. Anyway, mm -hmm. to cut a long story short, I thought, well, to pot with what they say, I'm going to use them with this lovely little girl. Mm -hmm. So I taught, and she learned maths quickly because I then mm. started to use my hands mm. but it was no good and by then I was very very upset about it watching lovely children being crucified mm. on the oralism being isolated unnecessarily Absolutely ridiculous yeah, because yeah. but the reason one of course the local authority if anybody had was deaf and had to go to the school for the deaf, the local authority had to pay £3,000 a year to have that deaf child educated at the school for the deaf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But of course, if they could send them to a unit, there was one teacher, one salary, and nine children. So it was really... Yeah, yeah. Money yeah. was behind it, and stupidity and ignorance. And my doctor said to me, Wilson, you've got to pack in. If you don't pack in, you'll have a complete nervous breakdown. So, with great regret, I left the deaf world and retired when I was just about 58, 59. And do you, do you know if those, you know, the, the elements that you saw as being the wrong approach have they been changed have they reversed those decisions they have changed yeah. over the years oh, although good. i can't tell you exactly no, of course, what's happened of course. but there's certainly manualism crept in mm -hmm. and children started going to school for the deaf and then of course they found something which prevented young girls getting german measles and german measles is a killer as far as pregnancy and babies are concerned for as far as deafness is concerned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the numbers started to reduce as they as they inoculated. That's right. right. And now right. I honestly don't know what's going in the on in the deaf world. Mm, mm. All I know is that occasionally I come across somebody who's deaf and I can manually communicate, at least I could, but I mean a couple of years ago I was in a shop in Piker and I wanted some baked beans and my eyesight was hopeless. So I stopped a lady who was pushing a trolley. I said, could you tell me please where the baked beans are? And she went, which she didn't know as a teacher of the deaf, but she was telling me she was deaf and dumb. Oh, speechless, I don't like the word dumb. Of course, yeah. So I immediately started saying, I said, good morning, it's a lovely boy. And her eyes just oh, lit that's up. fantastic. And we stood there for about a quarter of an hour just talking together. 
What a great skill to have. Well, I've explained to you when I go and give a talk or a lecture on it all, I explain to them that if you, as a hearing person, were shoved in the middle of Moscow with nobody talking to you because you don't understand Russian at all, mm. and suddenly somebody comes up to you and says, Ah, are you all right, Jody? Are you all right? Are you, you know, your eyes would light up like the eyes of the lady that I spoke totally. to yeah. in Biker. Yeah. So you've you've lived you've lived a very inspirational working life, haven't you? I mean, I've I, had I know a really exciting. You life. have an exciting life, and and you know, I, I know maybe that end wasn't the exit you wanted from that profession, but true. But I, I mean, you've you've always been involved in in roles that have kind of given something back, whether that's to you know to the to the country for your service, and, and then to individuals through supporting the deaf folks that you were looking after. Has that been something that you've consciously tried to do is that your nature i just i don't know i was brought up a scout scouting to me had more influence on my upbringing than anything else family church no scouting was with me all the time and i i've always liked scouting and it was so you, and I love teaching. And as that well. mentality is about looking after those around you, about supporting people around you. Is that the, is that where it comes from? Do you think? I really don't know. You know, you do things because you do them, and you can't yeah. really analyse yeah. it. Yeah. As I'm getting towards the end of my time, I think I'm thinking more about the past and mm. and, and mm. what I should have done, what I didn't do. And well, no one can regret that. We can't change anything that happened yesterday. Not not a single part of it. So all we can do is learn. Yes. And, and, and step forward. So what, what would you say your biggest lesson is in your working life then beyond, you know, beyond the war years up to the point of your retirement? I think a desire to give as much as you can to deaf people because it's the most isolating of all the handicaps. Mm-hmm. You know, Helen Keller, my lecturer at university, actually spoke to Helen Keller, who was deaf and blind, of course, and she asked Helen, if you could have one of the things back to your sight or your hearing, which would you have? Mm. And when I ask crowds of people, they always say, oh, sight, it's important. So I said, no, Helen Keller said, hearing. When you're blind, you're cut off from things. But when you're deaf, you're cut off from people. Okay. There's no communication. That's fascinating. And yeah. so that yeah. was her. And I had a little boy called Craig Crowley who was subtotally deaf, very profoundly deaf. And he was in the unit situation and he hated it because he wasn't being... He hadn't the communication they required to learn, and he was a bright little lad, and he was hell on earth for the teachers. Two or three of my teachers just about had a nervous breakdown over Mm -hmm. Craig. Mm -hmm. And then I met him in the junior department of the unit, and secretly I started introducing signs, and his eyes just lit up. And... uh, to cut a long story short, he did marvellously well in education. He was senior boy at university, really? profoundly deaf, wow. and he uh, was given the 
MBE by the Queen. Wow. The Queen presented, the Queen herself presented them with the MBE. That's amazing. That's just having faith in someone and giving yeah, them that, yeah. that little bit of extra support they need. Yes, Incredible. And he, he keeps emailing me every now and then. I've met him. He's been a couple of times up to my mm, flat. Mm. I mean, talking about being cut off, if we come right up today, obviously we haven't seen each other for... For a good long time, although we've spoken several times, it's been a real challenge, obviously, with COVID and the effect of, um, yeah. of the lockdown and, and, and folks being isolated. How, how have you handled that over the last 18 months or heading towards two years now? It's been a very unhappy time, apart from one lady. And without Maureen, I just could not have coped with the whole situation, the lockdown. And the first day the lockdown started, I started recording on a tape and I kept it on a few sentences every day, right up to date. Mm -hmm. So my family in the future will play this tape and they'll say, did that really happen in yeah. this country? Because I think it's important that people should know just what it's been like. But because of course you live in, you you live in an in, in, you've got an independent flat haven't you? Yes, I'm in sheltered accommodation, yes. and Maureen, right at the beginning, started doing my shopping for me and leaving it at the door because at that time you weren't allowed in the building, and then I used to open my window on the first floor flat and with a string lower a purse down with the money in. Wow. And, it was rather like Romeo and Juliet in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been an incredibly isolating time. And I think, I think there are some positives. We, we have seen some examples of, of our ability to support those around us, haven't we, from, from people that actually want to do that. You know, it's um, people that actually think beyond themselves, I think, have helped those around them. Yeah. But it's, um, it's certainly been a challenging time. Very challenging. And, you know, um, I think... A lot of people have had to be very careful because before the COVID jabs, the dangers were so real, weren't they? Absolutely. For, for folks, if they if they if they managed to um, pick up COVID, so you've done all the jabs. Everything's everything's done. So everything's up to date now yeah. with my jabs. But let's face it, you're still it, being careful. We're not finished yet. No, we're not finished. Not yet. by any no, chance. No. And how this country and other countries, particularly the poorer countries, yes. are going to recover from this, I just don't mm. know. It is mm. a fearful mm. problem lying ahead of us, the finances of the country and the Absolutely. people. Yeah, it's going to be a challenging time, definitely. But we are now starting to be able to get it out and about. We'll see how long that lasts for, won't we? But at the moment, we can get out and about. So have you had a few, have you had a few car journeys with, with, with Maureen? Have you, have you been doing a little bit? Yes, we've been out a little bit, and it's quite a few weeks or months ago now, Maureen's taken me to Stanhope and Barnet Castle, nice. which yeah. is my second home. I love Barnet Castle. Lovely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. I so, told you the story about Barnet no. Castle and me, did I? Go on, tell us about Barnet Castle. When I was 15 and I was at North Allerton, I cycled one day to Barnet Castle because my mother and father were on holiday at the time there. And as I was walking up the bank, there was a roar of aeroplanes and I looked up, the sky was full of Dorniers and Heinkels and ME110s. And I watched a Spitfire shoot down an ME110, which crashed in the field between Barney and Darlington. Incredible. 
and they survived. The pilot pulled his observer out of the aircraft before he fired it. And uh, 40 years after, I traced the pilot of the Spitfire and wrote to him, and then I traced the pilot of the ME110 and we wrote to each other. Really? I still have the letters. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And I wonder you were inspired to fly with your, all your experiences. Oh, yes. Um, last thing there before we finish. So, I mean, you started in the Northeast, and obviously this, this whole podcast is about the Northeast being a very special place. And I know we talked about, you know, you were initially involved with us with, with the Angel film and, and Durham Cathedral. But after going over to Canada and seeing a different part of the world and coming back and, and leaving the forces, did you ever think about moving to anywhere else? Did you always want to live in the Northeast? Do you know, I've never been... It's never been in my mind to try and get a job somewhere else. I know that I could have gone out into the Middle East and made a lot of money as a teacher of the deaf. No, no, I just didn't want to leave. In any case, of course, I forgot to tell you, the yachting came into it. I was invited to crew on a yacht, and for four years I was cook and navigator on a sloop rig, and it was just where was wonderful. the where was the yacht where was the yacht berthed where were you where, did, where were you based Sunderland was oh in our, Sunderland okay in the marina there port. Yeah. it was built at Swinburne's on the Tyne and uh, launched one night and four of us sailed it down to Sunderland where we had a berth in the quay there and uh, just as we got to the piers at Sunderland the north and south piers. The skipper, because he knew I was Sunderland-born, handed over the tiller to me. Wow. And I guided it through and up wow. the river wow. weir before he took over and dropped anchor. I mean, I think what you're saying really, Wilson, is that it's such a magical part of, this, of, of, of the country and of the world of, that you don't actually need to go very far um, within our region to, to kind of do everything you're interested in. True. Whether it's, whether it's flying or, 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 you know, out on a boat or... Just getting out into amazing places. So, but um, so I just wanted to say thank you very much for for giving us um, such a, a brilliant breakdown of your life, well, and for you. and for committing your time as well to to be our first podcast guest. You've been absolutely amazing. It's been it's been an amazing experience for me to meet you, and um, I've thoroughly enjoyed working with you over the last couple of years. And. I hope that continues for a lot longer. Well, I hope so. It was great to meet up, wasn't it, right at the beginning? It was. It was amazing. So, it was um, a great experience. So stay safe, and, uh, and we'll hopefully we'll, we'll look for another episode in episode 100. Hopefully you come back on. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Lovely. Excellent. Thank you very much, Wilson. I have my doubts whether I last that long, though. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thank you.